So we're in Genesis chapter 3 today. So if you want to open up your Bibles, you can go ahead and, and start turning your, there. It's not very many pages, but all right, you, it might take a second. You might flip too far and you got to come back. Um, last week, we kicked off this series. We kicked off the new year with Genesis 1 and 2. We looked at the creation, the story of God creating the world and how effortless it was and how powerful he is and that we serve a God that we should be in awe of. And then we looked at how much he, this powerful God, is not distant from us, but he cares deeply about us. And we could even see that in how we were created. And this week we continue in chapter 3. And I mentioned last week that there are three themes that we're going to see running through these first several chapters of Scripture. And those things are God's power, God's deep love he has for us, and then God's hatred of sin. Today, we will see those first two things, but mostly we're going to see that, that third one. And I know that doesn't make you super excited for the message to be like, let's talk about how much God hates sin. But that's what we're going to be talking about. That's what scripture shows us here today in Genesis chapter 3. So let's pick up in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. I just want to point out real quick that the serpent starts talking to Eve, and she's just cool with it, right? Like, she doesn't freak out. You know, like, I think that tells us something about how things were in the garden. That's not a point. That's just for free. Like, it's just, it's kind of weird that she was just like, oh, let me have this conversation with this serpent. So, anyway. Um, but she, <laughs> But this wasn't just... A serpent. This wasn't just that. And uh, what's interesting is that the Hebrew word that's used, uh, we see here that it says the serpent was more crafty. The Hebrew word has much less negative connotation to it. We see that and we read that like he was like trying to pull one over, but that's not what the Hebrew word meant. It just it's not doesn't have the negative connotation. So we know that the serpent wasn't acting on its own. It wasn't just the serpent's idea to go do that. This was, the serpent was being controlled somehow, being manipulated by the enemy. And I think it's important for us as believers to know when, where, and how we will be attacked by the enemy. So what I want to do is, is I want us to know the enemy. That's the first thing I see, I think we can get from this passage, is how we can know our enemy better. We can know our enemy, and Jesus calls him a liar and the father of lies in John chapter 8, verse, 40, verse 44. He is a liar and the father of lies is what is told to us about our enemy, the devil. And I want to look at how he tries and how he successfully tempts Eve here. We see him start off, and he gets Eve to question what God said. Off the bat, he leads in with a misleading question. He says, did God really say 
not to eat of any tree in the garden? The answer is no, God didn't say that. But off the bat, his question is misleading to get her to start doubting God. Because he gets her to answer a question about God with no. No, he didn't say that, is her response, because he didn't say that. And then he blatantly lies. Just an absolute God-denying lie. And he says, You will not surely die, for God knows when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Flat out, totally against what God says, lie. That's the strategy that he used here. I don't want to break this down. I want you to see if there's any parallels that you see to your own life. That maybe, maybe God didn't mean what he said. I mean, he, he couldn't have because whatever this thing is, it, it feels good. It feels good to lie or sexual sin or gossip or overindulgence. It, it feels good and you deserve it. There's no reason you shouldn't have what is good. God just doesn't want you to have it. How wrong those words are. Because some choices don't only have positive outcomes, but the enemy will mask your decisions to where you only see the positive and you don't see the negative outcomes of those decisions. We just think about how whatever that temptation is will make us feel in the moment. And we don't think about the consequences the negative effects of our action, just that instant gratification that it will bring us. And it's the same strategy that Satan has used since the beginning, is these lies, doubting God, doubting, well, did God say that? Did he mean that? He didn't say that. He was wrong. He must have meant this. And I want to look at a, a positive result from temptation in Matthew chapter 4. Starting in verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the devil comes to Jesus. And I think it's interesting this passage starts off by saying Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted. He was led there for the purpose of being tempted. And I think one of the biggest reasons is so that we can see his strategies. See, how did Jesus resist what the enemy was offering him and apply these things to our lives? So the enemy comes to Jesus and he says, you know, it's been 40 days since you've eaten. It's been 40 days. You're hungry. It's not good to be hungry. And he, he tempts Jesus with two different things to try to make it seem like it was a win-win. He says, look, you can prove that you're the son of God by turning these stones into bread. And then you get to eat. You haven't eaten in 40 days. So it's a win-win. You get to show your power and prove that you're the son of God. And then, then you get to eat. You get to be done with this fast. And we see how Jesus responds here. 
Jesus refuses to let his God, use his godhood for selfish gain. He refuses to do that, and then he continues obediently in his fasting. And he responds with two things that I think we can take away and see and use every time we are tempted. Those two things are memorizing Scripture. We can defeat temptation through memorized Scripture and knowing that what God has is better. Memorize Scripture and knowing what God has is better. Because part of sin is settling for something that is less than at the cost of something greater. And if we recognize that, it doesn't seem as appealing. Think about lying. It might get you out of a temporary trouble. You might be backed into a corner and so you lie. So you, you get out of a temporary trouble, but it, it costs you in the long run. It costs you your integrity. It costs you your, your trustworthiness. And as we know, you tell one line and you have to tell another and tell another and eventually it all falls apart. But we don't see that in that moment when we're backed into the corner and we just lie for that instant get out of it is what we see it as. And we don't think about the long-term effects. Gluttony, that the food may taste really good. It's going to taste really good when it hits your tongue, when it goes down, and it's, that cinnamon roll is warm and delicious. Again, I'm not preaching against cinnamon rolls. I love cinnamon rolls. But at a certain point, after your seventh one, maybe you should cool it down a little bit, right? And so I think, I think with gluttony, we don't, we don't see what happens months, years down the road. That behavior is going to show up on the scale. That behavior is going to end us up in the doctor's office. But we don't think about the effects of gluttony in the moment. Those are just two examples that what happens is we forget that what God has is better. That temporary fulfillment of sin is less than the eternal reward for obedience. Jesus quoted scripture when he was to combat the temptation. And the scripture that he quotes is interesting because it does both of these things. It was the promise that man does not live on bread alone. That settling for bread alone is less than what God has for us. So he quotes scripture and he quotes a scripture that he immediately dispels that what Satan has is what's best for him. Let's continue. He's going to keep using these same, these same strategies. Verse 5, it says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What, what does the enemy use here to tempt Jesus? Psalms, scripture. The enemy uses scripture to try to tempt Jesus. We got to be careful. That's why I wanted to talk about this this morning, is the enemy is deceitful. He is good at what he does. And we've got to be careful. He quoted scripture to try to draw Jesus into temptation. I, I was studying for this message, and um, the, I'm going to talk about the book of Job later. And in the book of Job, it says that Satan enters into the presence of God 
to have a conversation with God. And I, I was wrestling this week with the thought of how was he able to do that if God cannot be in the presence of sin? And so I'm, I'm researching this and I found out that that's just a phrase that preachers have said for a long time. God cannot be in the presence of sin is not in Scripture. Neither the verse nor an idea. It's just something that preachers have said for a really long time. And so we've gotten it into our minds of, oh, well, God can't be in the presence of sin. At least I had. Y'all might be smarter than me. But at least for me, I was thinking, okay, well, how can... But that's not true. And I think that's what's important about this passage is we have to know what's in Scripture. We have to know it because the enemy can attack you because he knows Scripture. And if you don't, it makes you vulnerable. There are things in Scripture that can and have been used out of context, like what the enemy said here. He was using it out of context. And then there's things that sound like Scripture that aren't, like God cannot be in the presence of sin. It it sounds like Scripture, but it's not in there. And it is paramount that we know Scripture. I'm not saying you need to know the numbers and the the colon and where it goes and like all that stuff. Like the reference, sure, that's great if if you can memorize that. But it is important that we know what it says. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, make your requests made known to God. I don't know the numbers that go after that. I know it's in Philippians. I'm pretty sure it's in two or four. I always get it mixed up. But what matters is that I know that truth. And when I'm struggling with anxiety, I can pull that out and say, not today, Satan. Not today. Memorizing, knowing Scripture is the only way we can combat the enemy. We have to know it. And Jesus responds to the enemy by saying, look, the point of those verses is not so that I could just show off that I am the Son of God. That's not why it was written in Psalms. That's not the purpose. And again, he points out that, yeah, I might gain some, he, might, he knew that he might gain some followers if he were to do this, but it's not as good as what God had planned. If he had jumped off the top of the temple and just kind of gracefully hit the ground, there would have been a lot of people who were like, I'm going to follow that guy. But they wouldn't have been real followers. They would have just been following because of the trick. They would have just been following because, yeah, I saw him do this really cool thing. They wouldn't have been true followers. Because what God had is what was is better than what the enemy could offer. We continue and uh, says, and again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This was kind of Satan's last stitch effort, his Hail Mary, for lack of a better term, that he was just trying to, maybe this will get him and just chuck it. And it didn't work, obviously. But... His plan was that he knew that Jesus on this earth was homeless and that by the world's standards, he was poor. He was poor and homeless. So the enemy takes him up and shows him, and again, I think this is 
a big concept that we just kind of gloss over when we read it. All of the kingdoms and all of their glory and offered it to him. All of it. It's a guy who's homeless and poor, was just offered everything in the world. If you think about it, that if you were offered all of the power and money and fame and medical care for you and your family that you guys would never want or need anything again, that's hard to pass up. That's, that's, that's tempting. And that's what Satan used here. We look at it and we think, silly devil. But that's not true. This was a big offer. He offered him a lot. But you know what it was less than? It was less than what God had planned. All of the power and the, the kingdoms of the earth are less than eternity. They are less than what God had planned. Jesus knew that. And so how does he respond? Through memorized scripture when he says, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. He knew that what the enemy was offering was less than what God was offering. And clearly Eve didn't see that happen. She didn't see that what the enemy was offering was less than what God had planned. So she thinks, you know what? He's right. I do deserve to eat this tree. I mean, God gave us dominion over all of creation. Why is he holding this one tree back from me? It's clearly good or God wouldn't have made it, so I should be able to have it. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar for how, how we fall into sin? We let the immediate outweigh the eternal. We let now overpower later. We think we deserve it or we're doing good enough or it's, it's not that bad. And we fall. And to encourage you in temptation... God tells us through Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, saying you're not alone. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Like I said earlier, we in the book of Job, you see, the enemy go to God and have a conversation with God, but God limits his ability to tempt Job. He says, you can only tempt him up till this point. Only up until right here. And the book of Job is about Job winning. It is about Job resisting the temptation to turn his back against God, despite all that had been taken from him. That's what this verse is. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape. Let's continue in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together to make themselves loincloths. How oh, the impact of that decision. Oh, the impact. The devastating. 
That with one bite of that fruit, all of humanity was separated from God. The blood required from sacrifices for thousands of years leading up to the death of Christ, which is also the result of that decision. All of that from that one decision. And then we see the consequence of sin continuing. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I have not commanded you to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. I want to pause here. You, you see how interesting that is, that each one of them shifts the blame to someone else? That he says, oh, well, it was a woman that you gave to me. And then the woman says, it was the serpent, which I think subconsciously she thought, who you created. The blame is shifted, not just to someone else, but they're trying to blame God. Look, it wasn't my fault. If you hadn't created this woman, I wouldn't have eaten the fruit. We do that too. We shift blame. We try to take it off of ourselves and say, oh, that wasn't me. Let's continue in verse 14. It says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly shall you shall go, and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, which have I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you. It shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the fields. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread and you shall return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve. Because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Ugh. That's hard. That's a heart-wrenching passage to read. So much, if not all, of the pains of our life come from these verses here. Let's just start with the dislike of snakes, right? Isn't that funny? That like... People don't, I got amen. People that don't like snakes, it's because of this verse that I will put enmity between you and her offspring. Nobody's gonna like snakes. And clearly, if you like snakes, you are not from the Lord. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. If you like snakes, the Lord still loves you. <clears throat> but clearly, we see in these verses that there are consequences of sin. There are consequences to our sin. Because of these verses, what happens here, we have relational issues. Your desires will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. It's a big part of why marriages fail. 
Desires are opposite of the spouse, and then there's a power struggle, and then struggles in relationships are, can be rooted here. That there is this struggle came from this. And then the man's curse. Face value may not seem like much, but this is why we have to go to work. This is it. Y'all can blame Eve for taking a bite of the apple, that we have to go to work, that we have to pay bills, that we have to have a mortgage, that we have to buy gas to put in our car and have insurance. And all of these things is because of this, that just because you might not work the ground and sweat from the thorns and the thistles from that, you still have to work for your food. You talk about punishment. There was just free food, guys. There was just free food. Before the fall, it was free. We didn't have to work for the food. It was free. We gave up a limitless supply of free food. There's a punishment right there. And obviously there are still consequences for our sin today. There are still consequences for each one of our sins That yes, we have been forgiven. You have been forgiven by the Lord. But that doesn't mean if you steal that you don't have to go to jail. There are still consequences for these things. And they can be far reaching. If your secret sin gets found out, it can impact your kids in ways that you can't imagine. Sins that you have in your life that you think it only impacts you, I promise that it doesn't. Your sin has consequences, and you will see it impact the people around you. Or you may not, but it will. And we see that that one sin that Adam had caused sin forever. Sin for all of time is rooted here. And then they even get to see it impact their children, as we'll see in the next chapter. They can see the impact that their sin has on their children. And at the end of these consequences that we just read, we see God say, out of dust you were taken, and to dust you will return. And this is where death enters the world. That's right. This is where we see death enter the world. It's through that right there. And we know that because we see it again later. God says through Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came in the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death has its root here in these verses as well. Death is a result of the fall. And we see the first death happen as a result of these verses when God creates for them Garments of skin. He had, an animal had to be killed. And this is seen by many as, a, as the first sacrifice to pay to cover up their sin. And a foreshadowing of the sacrifice that would need to be made by Jesus to cover all of our sins. It's from this first death, this first sacrifice that entered the world because of these sins. Let's finish out chapter 3, verse 22. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and, all, and take also of the tree of life and eat it and live forever. 
Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And I think while looking at face value again at this, it might look like a punishment of being kicked out of the garden. But in reality, this is protection. This is that deep love that God has for us in action right here in what looks at face value like a punishment. Because he knew that in sinful condition, if they ate of the tree of life and lived forever, they would be stuck forever in the sinful state. He didn't want that. Could you imagine what kind of torture that would be to live for eternity constantly haunted by, chased by, tempted by sin with no hope of heaven? That's how I get through it. As I know that one day I will not have to struggle with temptation anymore. That sin will no longer be chasing me, trying to get me to stumble. And that I will be able to rest in the arms of my Father in heaven. And it's because He protected us from the tree of life. That in our sinful state, He said, I'm removing them from the garden to protect them. And we know we weren't left in our sin That God didn't just leave us there and say, figure it out on your own, but he sent Jesus to die for us so that we could be restored to that relationship we had in the beginning where we can walk in the cool of the garden talking with God. I can't wait for that day. Praise God for the love that he has for us to give us a way out of temptation and restore us back to himself. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.